0: Hi everybody, Carla here on this Halloween, welcoming you back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Thanks so much for joining me. I have for you this Halloween five stories, and please be warned that they are a bit gory, they are a bit horrific And they may even cause some sleepless nights. So if that bothers you in any way, I would recommend that you choose something nicer from the podcast to listen to. And if you are still with me after that disclaimer, I will continue to tell you that I have five stories tonight. Four are from Edgar Allan Poe and another from Guy de Maupassant. So the very first story that I have for you tonight is called The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe and it's a gothic horror story published in 1843. This particular story is said to have cemented Poe's reputation as a master of the lurid gothic suspense story so you will get some clues from the story that this story happens during the Spanish Inquisition and my goodness the horror and the torture. Please, please be warned. After that, I have for you another Poe story, and this one is called The Cask of Amontillado. And this was written in 1846, or it was published, rather, in 1846 in Godey's Ladies' Book. And it features two main characters, Fortunato and Montressor. And there are some themes examined in the story, and they are deceit, revenge, murder, and maybe even a couple other uh, themes are explored in that, and um, you will decide that after you listen to the story. We'll take a break from Poe next and go to Guy de Maupassant, who also wrote a bit on the dark side. Now, the name of his story here is called Dennis, and there are two main characters in the story. Dennis, of course, who is a servant in the house of M. Marimbo. Please be warned, this story is actually very gruesome, to say the least. And again, if that troubles you in any way, please, please choose another reading because this one is quite gory and quite strange. Uh, And then we move on with uh, another Poe favorite, and this one is called The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. And what's interesting about this story is that when it was published, uh, Poe didn't put any disclaimers out that it was a fictional story. So many people at the time thought it was really a factual account. Uh, sometime later in his correspondence, he did clear that up so people understood that it was just a work of fiction. It's the story of a mesmerist who puts a guy to sleep, uh, or he puts him in a a hypnotic state, let's say that. He puts him in a hypnotic state at a very, very critical moment. So that's really a good one. And then we'll finish up with another Poe work called The Black Cat. And it first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post in 1843. Again, I warn you that these stories are gruesome. They are terrifying, even, and they—they they just, you know, they're—they're they're just stories that I would only read for Halloween. So, uh, I'm Mr. Poe, he was just not playing around. He knew how to incite fear and anxiety in his work. So. Uh, Again, if you are still with me, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And let's get to these wonderful stories here on Carla Reads the Classics. Please stay tuned. The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony. And when they at length unbound me, and I was permitted to sit. I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sentence, the dread sentence of death, was the last of distinct accentuation which reached my ears. After that, the sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum. It conveyed to my soul the idea of revolution, perhaps from its association and fancy with the burr of a, of a mill wheel, this only for a brief second, for presently I heard no more. Yet for a while I saw, but with how terrible an exaggeration, I saw the lips of the black-robed judges. They appeared to me white, whiter than the sheet upon which I traced these words, and thin even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of their expression of firmness, of immovable resolution, of stern contempt for human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from those lips. I saw them writhe with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the syllables of my name, and I shuddered because no sound succeeded. I saw, too, for a few moments the delirious horror, the soft and nearly imperceptible waving of the sable draperies which enwrapped the walls of the apartment, and then my vision fell upon the seven tall candles upon the table. At first they were the aspect of charity and seemed white slender angels who might save me. But then all at once there came a most deadly nausea over my spirit and I felt every fiber in my frame thrill as if I had touched the wire of a galvanic battery while the angel forms became meaningless specters with heads of flame. And I saw that from them there would be no help and then there stole into my fancy, like a rich musical note, the thought of what sweet rest there must be in the grave. The thought came gently and stealthily, and it seemed long before it attained full appreciation, but just as my spirit came at length properly to feel and entertain it, the figures of the judges vanished, as if magically, from before me, The tall candles sank into nothingness. Their flames went out utterly. The blackness of darkness superended. All sensations appeared shallow up in a mad, rushing descent, as of the soul into Hades. Then silence and stillness and night were the universe. I had swooned, but still will not say that all of my consciousness was lost. What of it there remained, I will not attempt to define or even to describe. Yet all was not lost. In the deepest slumber, no, in delirium, no, in a swoon, no, and in, in death, no. Even in the grave, all was not lost, else there is no immortality for man. Arousing from the most profound of slumbers, we break the gossamer web of some dream. Yet in a second afterwards, so frail may that web have been we remember not that we have dreamed in the return to life from the swoon there are two stages first that of the sense of mental or spiritual secondly that sense of the physical existence it seems probable that if that if upon reaching the second stage we could recall the impressions of the first we should find these impressions eloquent in memories of the gulf beyond and that gulf is what How at least shall we distinguish its shadows from those of the tomb? But if the impressions of what I have termed the first stage are not at will recalled, yet after long interval, do they not come unbidden while we marvel whence they come? He who has never swooned is not he who finds strange palaces and wildly familiar faces and coals that glow. Is not he who beholds floating in mid air the sad visions that many may not view? Is not he who ponders over the perfume of some novel flower? Is not he whose brain grows bewildered with the meaning of some musical cadence which has never before arrested his attention?' Amid frequent and thoughtful endeavors to remember, amid earnest struggles to regather some token of the state of seeming nothingness into which my soul had lapsed, there have been moments when I have dreamed of success. There have been brief, very brief periods when I have conjured up remembrances which the lucid reasons of the latter epoch assures me could have had reference only to that condition of seeming unconsciousness. These shadows of memory tell indistinctly of tall figures that lifted and bore me in silence down, down, still down, till a hideous dizziness oppressed me at the mere idea of the interminableness of the descent. They tell also of a vague horror at my heart on account of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then comes a sense of sudden motion motionlessness throughout all things as if those who bore me a ghastly train had outrun in their descent the limits of the limitless and paused from the wearisomeness of their toil. After this I called to mind flatness and dampness, and then all is madness, the madness of a memory which busies itself among forbidden things. Very suddenly there came back to my soul motion and sound the tumultuous motion of the heart, and in my ears the sound of its beating— then a pause in which all is blank, then again sound and motion and touch, a tingling sensation pervading my frame, then the mere consciousness of existence without thought, a condition which lasted long, then very suddenly thought and shuddering terror and earnest endeavor to comprehend my true state, then a strong desire to lapse into insensibility, then a rushing revival of soul and a successful effort to move, and now a full memory of the trial, of the judges, of the sable draperies, of the sentence, of the sickness, of the swoon, then entire forgetfulness of all that followed, of all that a later day and much earnestness of endeavor have enabled me vaguely to recall. So far I had not opened my eyes. I felt that I lay upon my back unbound. I reached out my hand, and it fell heavily upon something damp and hard. There I suffered it to remain for many minutes, while I strove to imagine where and what I could be. I longed, yet dared not to employ my vision. I dreaded the first glance at objects around me. It was not that I feared to look upon things horrible, but that I grew aghast lest there should be nothing to see. At length, with a wild desperation at heart, I quickly unclosed my eyes. My worst thoughts then were confirmed. The blackness of eternal night encompassed me. I struggled for breath. The intensity of the darkness seemed to oppress and stifle me. The atmosphere was intolerably close. I still lay quietly and made effort to exercise my reason. I brought to mind the inquisitorial proceedings and attempted from that point to deduce my real condition. The sentence had passed, and it appeared to me that a very long interval of time had since elapsed. Yet not for a moment did I suppose myself actually dead. What a supposition, notwithstanding what we read in fiction, is altogether inconsistent with real existence. But where and in what state was I? The condemned to death, I knew, perished unusually to the auto fe. And one of these had been held on the very night of the day of my trial. Had I been remanded to my dungeon to await the next sacrifice, which would not take place for many months? This I at once saw could not be. Victims had been in immediate demand. Moreover, my dungeon, as well as all the condemned cells at Toledo, had stone floors and light was not altogether excluded." A fearful idea now suddenly drove the blood and torrents upon my heart, and for a brief period I once more relapsed into insensibility. Upon recovering, I at once started to, my feet trembling convulsively in every fiber. I thrust my arms wildly above and around me in all directions. I felt nothing, yet dreaded to move a step, lest I should be impeded by the walls of a tomb. Perspiration burst from every pore and stood in cold, big beads upon my forehead. The agony of suspense grew at length intolerable, and I cautiously moved forward with my arms extended and my eyes straining from their sockets in the hope of catching some faint ray of light. I proceeded for many paces, but still all was blackness and vacancy. I breathed more freely. It seemed evident that mine was not at least the most hideous of fates. And now, as I still continued to step cautiously onward, there came thronging upon my my recollection a thousand vague rumors of the horrors of Toledo, of the dungeons there, had been strange things narrated, fables I had always deemed them, but yet strange and too ghastly to repeat, save in a whisper. Was I left to perish of starvation in the subterranean world of darkness? Or what fate perhaps even more fearful awaited me? That the result would be death and a death of more than customary bitterness, I knew too well the character of my judges to doubt. The mode and the hour were all that occupied or distracted me. My outstretched hands at length encountered some solid obstruction. It was a small, seemingly of stone masonry, very smooth, slimy, and cold. I followed it up, stepping with all the careful distrust with which certain antique narratives had inspired me. This process, however, afforded me no means of ascertaining the dimensions of my dungeon, as I might make its circuit and return to the point whence I set out, without being aware of the fact so perfectly uniform seen the wall. I, therefore, sought the knife which had been in my pocket, which, when led into the inquisitorial chamber, but it was gone. My clothes had been exchanged for a wrapper of coarse surge. I had thought of forcing the blade in some minute crevice of the masonry so that to identify my point of departure. The difficulty, nevertheless, was but trivial, although in the disorder of my fancy it seemed at first insuperable. I tore a part of the hem from my robe and placed the fragment at full length and at right angles to the wall. "'and groping my way around the prison, "'I could not fail to encounter this rag "'upon completing the circuit. "'So, at least I thought, "'but I had not counted upon the extent of the dungeon "'or upon my own weakness. "'The ground was moist and slippery. "'I staggered onward for some time "'when I stumbled and fell. "'My excessive fatigue induced me to remain prostrate, "'and sleep soon overtook me as I lay.' Upon awaking and stretching forth an arm, I found beside me a loaf and a pitcher with water. I was much too exhausted to reflect upon this circumstance, but ate and drank with avidity. Shortly afterwards I resumed my tour around the prison, and with much toil came at last upon the fragment of the surge, up to the period when I fell and had counted fifty-two paces, and upon resuming my walk I had counted forty-eight more, when I arrived at the rag they were in all, then, a hundred paces, and admitting two paces to the yard, I presumed the dungeon to be fifty yards in circuit. I had met, however, with many angles in the wall, and thus I could not form no guess at the shape of the vault, for vault I could not help supposing it to be. I had little object, certainly no hope, in these researches, but a vague curiosity prompted me to continue them quitting the wall, I resolved to cross the area of the enclosure. At first, I proceeded with extreme caution, for the floor, although seemingly of solid material, was treacherous with slime. At length, however, I took courage and did not hesitate to step firmly, endeavoring to cross in as direct a line as possible. I had advanced some ten or twelve paces in this manner, when the remnant of the torn hem of my robe became entangled between my legs, I stepped on it and fell violently on my face. In the confusion attending my fall, I did not immediately apprehend a somewhat startling circumstance, which yet, in a few seconds afterward, and while I still lay prostrate, arrested my attention. It was this. My chin rested upon the floor of the prison, but my lips and the upper portion of my head, although seemingly at a less elevation than the chin, touched nothing. At the same time, my forehead seemed bathed in a clammy vapor, and the peculiar smell of decaying fungus arose to my nostrils. I put forward my arm and shuddered to find that I had fallen at the very brink of a circular pit, whose extent, of course, I had no means of ascertaining at the moment. Groping about the masonry just below the margin, I succeeded in dislodging a small fragment and let it fall into the abyss. For many seconds I hearkened to its rever- reverberations as I, as it dashed against the sides of the chasm in its descent. At length there was a sullen plunge into water, succeeded by loud echoes. At the same moment there came a sound resembling the quick opening, as a rapid closing of a door overhead, while a faint gleam of light flashed suddenly through the gloom, and as suddenly faded away. I saw clearly the doom which had been prepared for me and congratulated myself upon the timely accident by which I had escaped. Another step before my fall and the world had seen me no more and the death just avoided was of that very character which I had regarded as fabulous and and frivolous in the tales respecting the Inquisition. To the victims of its tyranny there was the choice of death with its its direst physical agonies, or death, with its most hideous moral horrors. I had been reserved for the latter. By long suffering, my nerves had been unstrung, until I trembled at the sound of my own voice, and had become in every respect a fitting subject for the species of torture which awaited me. Shaking in every limb, I groped my way back to the wall, resolving there, to perish rather than risk the terrors of the wells, of which my imagination now pictured many in various, various positions about the dungeon. In other conditions of mind, I might have had courage to end my misery at once by a plunge into into one of these abysses. But now I was at the I was the veriest of cowards. Neither could I forget what I had read of these pits—that the sudden extinction of life formed no part of their most horrible plan. Agitation of spirit kept me awake for many long hours, but at length I again slumbered. Upon arousing, I found by my side, as before, a loaf and a pitcher of water. A burning thrust had consumed me, and I emptied the vessel at a a drought. It must have been drugged, for scarcely had I drunk before I became irresistibly drowsy. A deep sleep fell upon me, a sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, of course, I know not, but when once again I unclosed my eyes, the objects around me were visible. By a wild, sulfurous luster, the origin of which I could not at first determine, I was unable to see the extent and aspect of the prison. In its size, I had been greatly mistaken. The whole circuit of its walls did not exceed twenty-five yards." For some minutes this fact occasioned me a world of vain trouble, vain indeed for what could be of less importance under the terrible circumstances which environed me than the mere dimensions of my dungeon. But my soul took a wild interest in trifles, and I I busied myself in endeavors to account for the error I had committed in my measurement. The truth at length flashed upon me, In my first attempt at exploration, I had counted fifty-two paces up to the period when I fell. I must then have been within a pace or two of the fragment of surge. In fact, I had nearly performed the circuit of the wall. I then slept, and upon awakening, I must have returned upon my steps, thus supposing the circuit nearly double what it actually was. My confusion of mind prevented me from observing that I began my tour with the wall to the left and ended and ended it with the wall to the right. I had been deceived too in respect to the shape of the enclosure. In feeling my way, I had found many angles and thus deduced an idea of great irregularity. So potent is the effect of total darkness upon one arousing from a lethargy or sleep. The angles were simply those of a few slight depressions or niches at odd intervals. The general shape of the prison was square. What I had taken for masonry seemed now to be iron or some other metal in huge plates whose sutures or joints occasioned the depression. The entire surface of this metallic enclosure was rudely daubed and all the hideous and repulsive devices to which this charnel superstition of the monks had given rise the figures of fiends and aspect of menace with skeleton forms and other more really fearful images overspread and disfigured the walls. I observed that the outlines of these monstrosities were sufficient distinct, sufficiently distinct, but that the colors seemed faded and blurred, as if from the effects of a damp atmosphere. I now noticed the floor, too, which was of stone. In the center yawned the circular pit from whose jaws I had escaped, but it was the only one in the, dungeon. in the dungeon. All this I saw distinctly, and by much effort, for my personal condition had been greatly changed during slumber. I now lay upon my back and, at full length, on a species of low framework of wood. To this I was securely bound by a long strap resembling a surcingle. It passed in many convulsions about my limbs and body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm to such extent that I could, by dint of much exertion, supply myself with food from an earthen dish which lay by my side on the floor. I saw, to my horror, that the pitcher had been removed. I say to my horror, for I was consumed with intolerable thirst. This thirst, it appeared, to be the design of my persecutors to stimulate, for the food in the dish was meat pungently seasoned. Looking upward, I surveyed the ceiling of my prison. It was some thirty or forty feet overhead, and constructed much of the side walls. In one of its panels, a very singular figure riveted my whole attention. It was the painted figure of time, as he is commonly represented, save that in lieu of a scythe, he held what At a casual glance, I supposed to be the pictured image of a huge pendulum, such as we see on antique clocks. There was something, however, in the appearance of this machine which caused me to regard it more attentively. While I gazed directly upward at it, for its position was immediately over my own, I fancied that I saw it in motion. In an instant afterward, the fancy was confirmed. Its sweep was brief and of course slow. I watched it for some minutes, somewhat in fear, but more in wonder. Wearied at length with observing its dull movement, I turned my eyes upon the other objects in the cell. A slight noise attracted my notice, and looking to the floor, I saw several enormous rats traversing it. They had issued from the the well which lay just within view to my right. Even then, while I gazed, They came up in troops hurriedly, with ravenous eyes, allured by the scent of the meat. From this it required much effort and attention to scare them away. It might have been half an hour, perhaps even an hour, for I could take but imperfect note of time, before I again cast my eyes upward. What I then saw confounded and amazed me. The sweep of the pendulum had increased in extent by nearly a yard. As a natural consequence, its velocity was also much greater. But what mainly disturbed me was the idea that it had perceptively descended. I now observed, with what horror it is needless to say, that its nether extremity was formed of a crescent of glittering steel, about a foot in length from horn to horn, the horns upward and the under edge evidently as keen as that of a razor, like a razor also it seemed massy and heavy, tapering from the edge into a solid and broad structure above. It was appended to a weighty rod of brass, and the hole hissed as it swung through the air. I could no longer doubt the doom prepared for me by monkish ingenuity and torture. My cognizance of the pit had become known to the inquisitorial agents. The pit whose horrors had been destined for so bold a recusant as myself, the pit typical of hell and regarded by rumor as the ultimate thule of all their punishments. The plunge into this pit I had avoided by the merest of accidents, and I knew that surprise or entrapment into torment formed an important portion of all the grotesquerie of these dungeon deaths. "'Having failed to fall, it was no part of the demon plan "'to hurl me into the abyss, and thus, there being no alternative, "'a different and a milder destruction awaited me. "'Milder, I half smiled in my agony "'as I thought of such an application of such a term. "'What boots it to tell of the long, long hours of horror "'more than mortal, during which I counted "'the rushing oscillations of the steel?' "'inch by inch, line by line, "'with a descent only appreciable at intervals that seemed ages. "'Down and still down it came. "'Days passed. "'It might have been that many days past, "'ere it swept so closely over me "'as to fan me with its acrid breath. "'The odor of the sharp steel forced, its, forced itself into my nostrils. "'I prayed. "'I wearied heaven with my prayer for its more speedy descent.' I grew frantically mad and struggled to force myself upward against the sweep of the fearful scimitar, and then I fell suddenly calm and lay smiling at the glittering death as a child at some rare bauble. There was another interval of utter insensibility. It was brief, for upon again laps, last lapsing into life there had been no perceptible descent in the pendulum. But it might have been long, for I knew there were demons who took note of my swoon, And who could have arrested the vibration at pleasure? Upon my recovery, too, I felt very, oh, inexpressibly sick and weak, as if through long inanition. Even amid the agonies of that period of human nature craved food. With painful effort, I outstretched my left arm as far as my bonds permitted and took possession of the small remnant which had been spared me by the rat's. As I put a portion of it within my lips, there rushed to my mind a half-formed thought of joy, of hope. Yet what business had I with hope? It was, as I say, a half-formed thought. Man has many such which are never completed. I felt that it was of joy, of hope, but I felt also that it had perished in its formation. In vain I struggled to perfect, to regain it, Long-suffering had nearly annihilated all my ordinary powers of mind. I was an imbecile, an idiot. The vibration of the pendulum was at right angles to my length. I saw that the crescent was designed to cross the region of the heart. It would fray the surge of my robe. It would return and repeat its operations again and again. Notwithstanding its terrifically wide sweep, Some thirty feet or more, and the hissing vigor of its descent sufficient to sunder these very walls of iron, still the fraying of my robe would be all that for several minutes it would accomplish. And at this thought, I paused. I dared not go, go farther than this reflection. I dwelt upon it with a pertinacity of attention, as if in so dwelling I could arrest here the descent of the steel. I forced myself to ponder upon the sound of the crescent, as it should pass across the garment, upon the peculiar thrilling sensation which the friction of cloth produces on the nerves. I pondered upon all this fibrolity until my teeth were on edge. Down, steadily down, it crept. I took a frenzied pleasure in contrasting its downward with its lateral velocity. To the right, to the left, far and wide, with the shriek of a damned spirit to my heart with the stealthy pace of, of the tiger. I alternately laughed and howled as the one or the other idea grew predominant. Down, certainly relentlessly down, it vibrated within three inches of my bosom. I struggled violently, furiously, to free my left arm. This was free only from the elbow to the hand. I could reach the ladder, from the platter beside me, to my mouth with great effort, but no farther. Could I have broken the fastenings above the elbow, I would have seized and attempted to arrest the pendulum. I might as well have attempted to arrest an avalanche. Down, still unceasingly, still inevitably down, I gasped and struggled at each vibration. I shrunk convulsively at its very sweep. My eyes followed it outward or upward swirled with the eagerness of the most unmeaning despair. They closed themselves spasmodically at the descent, although death would have been a relief. Oh, how unspeakable! Still, I quivered in every nerve to think how slight a sinking of the machinery would precipitate that clean, glistening axe upon my bosom. It was hope that prompted the nerve to quiver, the frame to shrink. It was hope. The hope that triumphs on the rack that whispers to the death condemned, even in the dungeons of the Inquisition. I saw that some ten or twelve vibrations would bring the steel in actual contact with my robe and with this observation there suddenly came over my spirit all the keen, collected calmness of despair. For the first time during many hours, or perhaps days, I thought. It now occurred to me that the bandage or surcingle which enveloped me was unique. I was tied by no separate cord. The first stroke of the razor-like crescent, athwart any portion of the band, would so detach it that it might be unwound from my person by means of my left hand. But how fearful, in that case, the proximity of the steel! The result of the slightest struggle! How deadly! Was it likely, moreover, that the minions of the torturer had not foreseen and provided for this possibility? Was it probable that the bandage crossed my bosom in the track of the pendulum? Dreading to find my faint and, as it seemed, my last hope frustrated, I so far evaluated my head as to obtain a distinct view of my breast. The surcingle enveloped my limbs and body close in all directions, save save in the path of of the destroying crescent. Scarcely had I dropped my head back into its original position when there flashed upon my mind what I cannot better describe than as the unformed half of that idea of deliverance to which I have previously alluded, and of which a moiety only floated indeterminately through my brain when I raised food to my burning lips. The whole thought was now present, feeble, scarcely sane, scarcely definite, but still entire— I proceeded at once with the nervous energy of despair to attempt its execution. For many hours the immediate vicinity of the low framework upon which I lay had been literally swarming with rats. They were wild, bold, ravenous, their red eyes glaring upon me as if they waited but for motionlessness on my part to make me their prey. To what food, I thought, have they been accustomed in the well? They had devoured, in spite of all my efforts to prevent them, all but a small remnant of the contents of the dish. I had fallen into a habitual seesaw or wave of the hand about the platter, and at length the unconscious uniformity of the movement deprived it of effect. In their veracity, the vermin frequently fastened their sharp fangs in my fingers. With the particles of the oily and spicy viand, which now remained, I thoroughly rubbed the bandage wherever I could reach it. Then, raising my hand from the floor, I lay breathlessly still. At first, the ravenous animals were startled and terrified at the change, at the cessation of movement. They shrank alarmedly back. Many sought the well, but this was only for a moment. I had not counted in vain upon their veracity. Observing that I had not, uh, observing that I remained without motion, one or two of the boldest leaped upon the framework and smelt at the at the surcingle. This seemed the signal for a general rush. Forth from the well they hurried in, fresh troops. They clung to the wood, they overran it, and leaped in hundreds upon my person. The measured movement of the pendulum disturbed them, not at all. Avoiding its strokes, they busied themselves with the anointed bandage. They pressed, they swarmed upon me in ever-accumulating heaps. They writhed They writhed upon my throat, their cold lips sought my own. I was half stifled by their thronging, pressure. disgust, for which the world has no name, swelled my bosom, and chilled with heavy clamminess in my heart. Yet one minute and I felt that the struggle would be over. Plainly, I perceived the loosening of the bandage. I knew that in more than one place it must be already severed. With the more human resolution, I lay still. Nor had I erred in my calculations, nor had I endured in vain. I at length felt that I was free. The surcingle hung in ribands from my body, but the stroke of the pendulum already pressed upon my bosom. It had divided the surge of the robe. It had cut through the linen beneath. Twice again it swung, and a sharp sense of pain shot through every nerve. But the moment of escape had arrived. At a wave of my hand, my deliverers hurried tumultuously away. With the steady movement, cautious, sidelong, shrinking, and slow, I slid from the embrace of the bandage and was beyond the reach of the scimitar. For the moment, at least, I was free, free, and in the grasp of the Inquisition. I had scarcely stepped from my wooden bed of horror upon the stone floor of the prison when the motion of the hellish machine ceased, and I beheld it drawn up by some invisible force through the ceiling. This was a lesson which I took desperately to heart. My every motion was undoubtedly watched. Free! I had but escaped death in one form of agony, to be delivered unto worse than death in some other. With that thought, I rolled my eyes nervously around the barriers of iron that hemmed me in. Something unusual, some change which, at first, I could not appreciate distinctly. It was obvious had taken place in the apartment. For many minutes of a dreamy and trembling abstraction, I busied myself in vain, unconnected conjecture. During this period I became aware, for the first time, of the origin of the sulfurous light which illuminated the cell. It proceeded from a fissure about half an inch in width, extending entirely around the prison at the base of the walls, which thus appeared and were completely separated from the floor. I endeavoured, but of course in vain, to look through the the aperture. As I rose from the attempt, the mystery of the alteration in the chamber broke at once upon my understanding. I have observed that although the outlines of the figures upon the walls were sufficiently distinct, yet the colours seemed blurred and indefinite. These colours had now assumed brilliancy that give to the spectral and fiendish portraiture's and demon eyes of a wild and ghastly vivacity glared upon me in a thousand directions where none had been visible before and gleamed with the lurid luster of a fire that i could not force my imagination to regard as unreal unreal even while i breathed there came to my nostrils the breath of the vapor of heated iron a suffocating odor pervaded the prison a deeper glow settled each moment in eyes that glared at my agonies a richer tint of crimson diffused itself over the pictured horrors of blood. I panted, I gasped for breath. There could be no doubt of the design of my tormentors, almost unrelenting, most demoniac of men. I shrank from the glowing metal to the center of the cell. Amid the thought of the fiery destruction that impended, the idea of the coolness of the well came over my soul like balm. I rushed to its deadly brink. I threw my straining vision below. The glare from the enkindled roof illuminated its inmost recesses. Yet for a wild moment did my spirit refuse to comprehend the meaning of what I saw. At length it forced, it wrestled its way into my soul. It burned itself upon my shuddering reason. Oh, for a voice to speak! Oh, horror! Oh, horror! Any horror but this! With a shriek I rushed from the margin and buried my face in my hands, weeping bitterly. The heat rapidly increased, and once again I looked up, shuddering as if with a fit of the ague. There had been a second change in the cell, and now the change was obviously in the form. As before, it was in vain that I had first endeavored to appreciate or understand what was taking place. But not long was I left in doubt. The inquisitorial vengeance had been hurried by my twofold escape, and there was to be no more dallying with the king of terrors. The room had been square. I saw that two of its iron angles were now acute, two consequently obtuse. The fearful difference quickly increased with a low rumbling or moaning sound. In an instant the apartment had shifted its form into that of a lozenge. But the alteration stopped not there. I neither hoped nor desired it to stop. I could have clasped the red walls to my bosom as a garment of eternal peace. Death, I said, any death but that of the pit. Fool, might I, might I not have known that into the pit was the object of the burning iron to urge me? Could I resist its glow, or, if even that, could I withstand its pressure? And now flatter and flatter grew the, lozen- the lozenge with a rapidity that left me no time for contemplation. Its center, and of course its greatest width, came just over the yawning gulf. I shrank back, but the closing walls pressed me relentlessly onward. At length for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold on the firm floor of the prison. I struggled no more, but the agony of my soul found vent in one loud, long, and final scream of despair. I felt that I tottered upon the brink. I averted my eyes. There was a discordant hum of human voices. There was a loud blast as of many trumpets. There was a harsh grating as of a thousand thunders. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell fainting into the abyss. It was that of General La Salle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Inquisition was in the hand of its enemies. And that is the end of Poe's the Pit and the Pendulum. Let's continue with the second story. And again, this one is called The Cask of Amontillado. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity.' A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the Avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who he has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation." He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship and wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting Gemery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado, I have my doubts. Amontillado, and I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchesi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from sherry, and yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi. I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no, it is not the engagement but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. "'The vaults are insufferably damp. "'They are encrusted with nitre. "'Let us go, nevertheless. "'The cold is merely nothing. "'Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. "'As for Luchesi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado.' "'Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, "'putting on a mask of black silk "'and drawing a rocular closely about my person. "'I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo.' There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until morning and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux and, giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding stair- staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montressors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. "'The pipe,' said he. "'It is farther on,' said I, but observe the white webwork work which gleams from these cavern walls.' He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Niter, he asked at length. Niter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? (laughs) My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchesi. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true. I replied, and indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper precaution. A draught of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said to the buried that repose around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montressers, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones with casts and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back. ere it is too late. Your cough. It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draught, another draught of the medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upward with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my rocular you jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces, but let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and, descending again, arrived at a deep crypt in which the the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were all ornamented in this manner. From the fourth the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall, thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no special use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. "'Proceed,' I said. "'Herein is the Amontillado.' "'As for Luchisi?' "'He is an ignoramus,' interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward." While I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche and, finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other, a padlock throwing the links about his waist. It was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the niter. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, he let me, once more, let me implore you to return. No, then I must positively leave you, but but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I had spoken before. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier and the third and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain The noise lasted for several minutes, during which that I might hearken to it the more satisfaction. I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and, holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form seemed to thrust me violently back for a brief moment i hesitated i trembled unsheathing my rapier i began to grope with it about the recess but the thought of an instant but the thought of an instant reassured me i placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied i reapproached the wall I replied to the yells of him who clamoured. I reached, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last, and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out of the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, Ha ha ha! He he! A very good joke indeed, an excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. he <laughs> he! Over our wine! <laughs> The Amontillado, I said. (laughs) Yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be waiting for us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montressor. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. and passe requiescat. And that is the end of our second story, The cast of Cask of Amontillado, pardon me, by Edgar Allan Poe. Please stay tuned for the third story, which is Dennis by Guy de Maupassant. Next, we have Dennis by Guy de Maupassant. To Leon Champron. Marimbeau opened the letter which his servant Dennis gave him and smiled. For 20 years, Dennis had been a servant in this house. He was a short, stout, jovial man who was known throughout the countryside as a model servant. He asked, Is Monsieur pleased? Has Monsieur received good news? M. Marimbeau was not rich. He was an old village druggist a bachelor, who lived on an income acquired with difficulty by selling drugs to the farmers. He answered, Yes, my boy, old man Malloy is afraid of the lawsuit with which I am threatening him. I shall get my money tomorrow. Five thousand francs are not liable to harm the account of an old bachelor. M. Marimbo rubbed his hands with satisfaction. He was a man of quiet temperament, more sad than gay, and capable of any prolonged effort careless in business. He could undoubtedly have amassed a greater income had he taken advantage of the deaths of colleagues established in more important centers by taking their places and carrying on their business. But the trouble of moving and the thought of all the preparations had always stopped him. After thinking the matter over for a few days, he would be satisfied to say, bah, I'll wait until next time. I'll not lose anything by the delay. I may even find something better." Dennis, on the contrary, was always urging his master to new enterprises. Of an energetic temperament, he would continually repeat, Oh, if I had only had the capital to start out with, I could have made a fortune. One thousand francs would do me. M. Marenbo would smile without answering and would go out in his little garden where where his hands behind his back, he would walk about dreaming. All day long, Dennis sang the joyful refrains of folk songs of the district. He even showed an unusual activity, for he cleaned all the windows of the house, energetically rubbing the glass and singing at the top of his voice. M. Marimbo, surprised at his zeal, said to him several times, smiling, My boy, if you work like that, there will be nothing left for you to do tomorrow. The following day, at about nine o'clock in the morning, The postman gave Dennis four letters for his master, one of them very heavy. M. Marimbo immediately shut himself up in his room until late in the afternoon. He then handed his servant four letters for the mail. One of them was addressed to M. Malloy. It was undoubtedly a receipt for the money. Dennis asked his master no questions. He appeared to be as sad and gloomy that day as he had seemed joyful the day before. Night came. M. Marimbo went to bed, as usual, and slept. He was awakened by a strange noise. He sat up in his bed and listened. Suddenly the door opened, and Dennis appeared, holding in one hand a candle and in the other hand a carving knife, his eyes staring, his face contracted as though moved by some deep emotion. He was as pale as a ghost. M. Marimbo, astonished, thought that he was sleepwalking, and he was going to get out of bed and assist him when the servant blew out the light and rushed for the bed. His master stretched out his hands to receive the shock which knocked him over on his back. He was trying to seize the hands of his servant, whom he now thought to be crazy, in order to avoid the blows which the latter was aiming at him. He was struck by the knife, once in the shoulder, once in the forehead, and the third time in the chest, He fought wildly, waving his arms around in the darkness, kicking and crying. Dennis! Dennis, are you mad? Listen! Listen, Dennis! But the latter, gasping for breath, kept up his his furious attack, always striking, always repulsed, sometimes with a kick, sometimes with a punch, and rushing forward again furiously. M. Marenbo was wounded twice more, once in the leg and once in the stomach. But suddenly, a thought flashed across his mind, and he began to shriek. Stop! Stop, Denis! I have not yet received my money! The man immediately ceased, and his master could hear his labored breathing in the darkness. M. Marimbo then went on. I have received nothing. M. Malloy takes back what he said. The lawsuit will take place. That is why you carried the letters to the mail. I just read those on my desk. Just read them. With a final effort, he reached for his matches and lit the candle. He was covered with blood. His sheets, his curtains, and even the walls were splattered with red. Dennis, standing in the middle of the room, was also bloody from head to foot. When he saw the blood, M. Marimble thought himself dead and fell unconscious. At break of day, he revived. It was some time, however, before he regained his senses and was able to understand or remember. But suddenly the memory of the attack and of his wounds returned to him, and he was filled with such terror that he closed his eyes in order not to see anything. After a few minutes he grew calmer and began to think. He had not died immediately, therefore he might still recover. He felt weak, very weak but he had no real pain, although he noticed an uncomfortable, smarting sensation in several parts of his body. He also felt icy cold and all wet as though wrapped up in bandages. He thought that this dampness came from the blood which he had lost, and he shivered at the dreadful thought of this red liquid which had come from his veins and covered his bed. The idea of seeing this terrible spectacle again so upset him that he kept his eyes closed with all his strength, as though they might open in spite of himself. What had become of Dennis? He had probably escaped. But what could he, Marimbo, do now? Get up? Call for help? But if he should make the slightest motions, his wounds would undoubtedly open again, and he would die from loss of blood. Suddenly he heard the door of his room open. His heart almost stopped. It was certainly Dennis who was coming to finish him up. He held his breath in order to make the murderer think that he had been successful. He felt his sheet being lifted up, and then someone feeling his stomach. A sharp pain near his hip made him start. He was being very gently washed with cold water. Therefore, someone must have discovered the misdeed, and he was being cared for. A wild joy seized him, but prudently... "'He did not wish to show that he was conscious. "'He opened one eye, just one, with the greatest precaution. "'He recognized Dennis standing beside him. "'Dennis himself. Mercy!' he hastily closed his eye again. "'Dennis, what could he be doing? "'What did he want? "'What awful scheme could he now be carrying out? "'What was he doing? "'Well, he was washing him in order to hide the traces of his crime.' "'and he would now bury him in the garden "'under ten feet of earth "'so that no one could discover him "'or perhaps under the wine cellar. "'And M. Marenboe began to tremble like a leaf. "'He kept saying to himself, "'I am lost, lost. "'He closed his eyes so as not to see the knife "'as it descended for the final stroke. "'It did not come. "'Dennis was now lifting him up and bandaging him. "'Then he began carefully to dress the wound on his leg, as his master had taught him to do. There was no longer any doubt. His servant, after wishing to kill him, was trying to save him. Then M. Marimbo, in a dying voice, gave him the practical piece of advice. Wash the wounds in a dilute solution of carbolic acid. Denis answered, That is what I am doing, monsieur. M. Marimbo opened both his eyes. There was no sign of blood either on the bed... "'on the walls or on the murderer. "'The wounded man was stretched out on clean white sheets. "'The two men looked at each other. "'Finally, Marimbo said calmly, "'You have been guilty of a great crime.' "'Denis answered, "'I am trying to make up for it, Monsieur. "'If you will not tell on me, "'I will serve you as faithfully as in the past.' "'This was no time to anger his servant,' Marimbo murmured as he closed his eyes.' I swear not to tell on you. Denis saved his master. He spent days and nights without sleep, never leaving the sick room, preparing drugs, broths, potions, feeling his pulse, anxiously counting the beats, attending him with the skill of a trained nurse and the devotion of a son. He continually asked, Well, Monsieur, how do you feel? M. Marimbo would answer in a weak voice, A little better, my boy, thank you and when the sick man would wake up at night, he would often see his servant seated in an armchair, weeping silently. Never had the old druggist been so cared for, so fondled, so spoiled. At first he had said to himself, As soon as I am well, I shall get rid of this rascal. He was now convalescing, and from day to day he would put off dismissing his murderer. He thought that no one would ever show him such care and attention, for he told this man, for he held this man through fear, and he warned him that he had left a document with a lawyer denouncing him to the law if any new accident should occur. This precaution seemed to guarantee him against any future attack, and he then asked himself if it would not be wiser to keep this man near him in order to watch him closely. Just as formerly, when he would hesitate about taking some larger place of business, he could not make up his mind to any decision. There is always time, he would say to himself. Dennis continued to show himself an admirable servant. and Marimbo was well. He kept him. One morning, just as he was finishing breakfast, he suddenly heard a great noise in the kitchen. He hastened in there. Dennis was struggling with two gendarmes. An officer was taking notes on his pad. As soon as he saw his master, the servant began to sob, exclaiming, You told on me, Monsieur, that's not right, after which you had promised me. You have broken your word of honor, Monsieur Marimbeau. That is not right. That's not right. And Marimbeau, bewildered and distressed at being suspected, lifted his hand. I swear to you before the Lord, my boy, that I did not tell on you. I haven't the slightest idea how the police could have found out about your attack on me the officer started. "'You say that he attacked you, M. Marimbeau?' The bewildered druggist answered. "'Yes, but I did not tell on him. I haven't said a word, I swear it. He has served me excellently from that time on.' The officer pronounced severely. "'I will take down your testimony. The law will take notice of this new action, of which it was ignorant, Monsieur Marimbeau.' "'I was commissioned to arrest your servant "'for the theft of two ducks surreptitiously taken by him "'from M. Dumahel, on which act there are witnesses. "'I shall make a note of your information.' "'Then, turning toward his men, he ordered, "'Come on, bring him along.' "'The two gendarmes dragged Dennis out. "'The lawyer used a plea of insanity.' "'contrasting the two misdeeds in order to strengthen his argument. "'He had clearly proved that the theft of the two ducks "'came from the same mental condition "'as the eight knife wounds in the body of Marimbo. "'He had cunning, cunningly analyzed all the phases "'of this transistory condition of mental aberration, "'which could doubtless be cured by a few months' treatment "'and a reputable sanatorium. "'He had spoken in enthusiastic terms "'of the continued devotion of this faithful servant, of the care with which he had surrounded his master, wounded by him in a moment of alienation. Touched by this memory, M. Marimbo felt the tears rising to his eyes. The lawyer noticed it, opened his arms with a broad gesture, spreading out the long black sleeves of his robe like the wings of a bat, and exclaimed, "'Look, look, gentlemen of the jury, look at those tears. What more can I say for my client?' What speech, what argument, what reasoning would be worth these tears of his master? They speak louder than I do, louder than the law. They cry. Mercy for the poor wandering mind of a while ago. They implore, they pardon, they bless. He was silent and sat down. Then the judge, turning to Marimbo, whose testimony had been excellent for his servant, asked him, But, Monsieur, even admitting that you consider this man insane— that does not explain why you should have kept him he was none the less dangerous marimba wiping his eyes answered well your honor what can you expect nowadays it's so hard to find good servants i could never have found a better one dennis was acquitted and put in a sanatorium at his master's expense And that is the end of Dennis by Guy de Maupassant. I ask you to please pardon my reading flubs. They happen from time to time. Uh, What can I say? (laughs) But anyway, I hope you were able to enjoy the story despite those reading flubs. Thank you so much. Please stay tuned for two more stories from Edgar Allan Poe.